Well, as I've said a few times, this morning's sermon text speaks to something that is very dear to us as a people at Calvary. It speaks to many other things as well, but one thing we have been praying for for a long time that I pray for every day, and some of you join me in praying for every day, some of you have been praying for longer than I have here, is that the Lord would pour out his spirit upon this very people, that we would see a great and mighty working of God in this church and in this town Uh, And what I mean by that is that uh, there are ordinary workings of God's Spirit. In other words, when we go about church and we do things like preach and pray and have Bible studies and serve, when we do things like that, the Lord is constantly working through it. And it feels often like a drop here and a drop there. Someone comes to Christ here, someone comes to Christ there. We celebrate and we baptize them. Uh, Someone turns a corner in their Christian life, turning from sin and having a moment of great growth. And that happens here and there. We rejoice when it, when it does. Uh, someone is healed miraculously. We've seen that here, right? It happens here and it happens there. Uh, and we rejoice when it happens. And if we think of each of those like drops of water in a rainstorm, sometimes what the Lord does is just dump out a bucket all at once, just whoosh. And the ordinary workings of God's Spirit begin to happen at a great accelerated pace, many, many happening all the time, as if we had poured gasoline on a fire that was already going, or as if, uh, you know, this is a really untimely illustration, but when it's hot outside and those splash pads are going at the park in Franklin and in Whiteland and the one up here, some of you have kids and grandkids, you know about this, the kids are running around in their swimsuits, right, and there is mist spraying on them all the time, and so they're always getting a little wet, right, but then there's that bucket on the axle. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And it slowly fills up with water about eight or 10 feet in the air. And the kids have no power to control when this thing is going to dump out. But boy, they're ready for it, aren't they? Like they are gathered there like, bring it, right? And and they just can't wait for, I mean, they're getting, you know, sprayed here and sprayed there and they're having fun. But if they're there at the right time, all of a sudden that bucket fills up to where it loses its center of gravity and whoosh, right? And there's much rejoicing and giggling and glee among all of the children. Well, church life is kind of like that. I mean, the spirit is always working. We're always getting a little wet, so to speak. Uh, But Sometimes that bucket fills up and just whoosh, right? And and the Lord just does mighty works among the people. We pray for that all the time. The question we want to ask this morning is, if the Lord does something like that here, if he answers our prayers, are we ready for that? Now, I don't just mean as an institution, are we ready to care for all their kids in the kids' wing? I don't mean that. I mean, are our hearts ready for that. Because the truth is, when the Lord increases his working, the enemy increases his working as well. Satanic attack comes alongside of it, and church becomes much more spiritual warfare than it was before. Uh, The first great awakening that happened here in the States in the 1740s uh, happened in New England, and, and many mighty works of God were done. And at the same time, Satan was working overtime. Uh, And the whole thing came to an end when a prominent man in the town very suddenly took his own life. Prominent Christian man in the town very suddenly committed suicide. And then the town lost heart and it was over, right? So, So as the Lord works, Satan increases his working to try to stop it. 
So the Lord may answer our prayer and we may not be ready for it and things could fizzle out before they even start. Are we ready? That's one question we're going to find an answer to here. How might the Lord prepare us? We'll also look at how can we prepare for the coming of the Lord here on Sunday morning as we believe God gathers with us. And ultimately, how can we prepare for the return of our Lord when Jesus Christ comes in the flesh? We'll see all of this as before Jesus comes the first time, he sends John the Baptist to prepare the people, to make ready a people prepared. We'll see patterns there that help us prepare for the Lord's coming today. If you would look with me at the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we are diving now into the story of Luke. We'll at least go through the first three chapters in the coming months. Today, we'll do half of the story of the angel appearing to Zechariah, verses 5 through 17. I want to continue something that we started last week. After I've read the text, I will say the words of the Lord, and if you would respond in full voice, may all flesh tremble. We'll remember together the power of God's words. Here are the words. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now when he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The words of the Lord may all flesh tremble. Through that story, our Lord prepares his people for his coming by calling us to turn from sin. Now, before we get into today's message, I want to show you something about how the gospel of Luke works, because we tend to want to oversimplify the stories that the Bible tells. Uh, and what I mean by that is many of you are familiar with Aesop's fables, familiar to us as we were read them as children. And Aesop's fables work like this. There's a short story, and then there is a moral to the story, right? Each story has one moral. One story, one point. Real simple, right? So tortoise and the hare, the moral of this story is slow and steady wins the race, right? The boy who cried wolf. The moral of this story is lies erode trust, and so on and so forth. One story, one point. Sometimes we go to the stories of the Bible asking, okay, 
here's one story, what's the one point of this story? And the truth is, writers like Luke and other story writers in the Bible, uh, they are much more sophisticated than that. One story may have seven points, and six of those points may be repeated in the next story. And then in the third story, three more are repeated, and then a few more are brought in. So through themes that are repeated over and over in stories, through little details that happen in the stories, all sorts of points are drawn out. The verses we just read have, by my count, at least five points that Luke is making. And I want to show you how in-depth he is in his point-making just by running you through four other points. And then we will return to the one I want to focus on today, which is God's work of preparing his people to receive his presence. So let's look quickly at the story itself. Uh, We start in verse 5 where we see repeated the point of the last few verses. Now, the first sentence in the Gospel of Luke, you may remember this from last week, the point of it is Luke did the research and these things really happened, right? You can be confident in the apostles' teaching because Luke did his research, verified that Jesus really did these things. He will now in this verse show that in a subtle way. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. What he's doing here is he is putting more historical detail than we need to understand the story. We don't need to know that this happened during the days of Herod. That's important for Matthew's telling of it, not really very important for Luke's telling of it. We don't need to know that Zechariah's division was of the division of Abijah. That's more information than we need for the story. So why is he putting that in there? Well, because he did the research and he verified that these things really happened, right? So he's putting concrete details as a way of whispering He was a priest of the division of Abijah, and I looked that up. It really happened, right? It's verifying that this is history by putting these kind of details there. So there's one point he's making, repeating what he was just saying before. He will do that many times in the book. We move on to verse 6. We see that both Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous before God. They walked in all of his ways, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So they're older, the time has passed to have a child, and they have no child. And this would be confusing for them because in Israel, under that covenant, people who are righteous before God expected that God would give them children. That was part of his promise to that nation. So they would read Psalm 128, blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table, right? Expecting that part of what they get when they're righteous before God is many children and lots of fertility. That was how it happened for them then. But every once in a while, someone would walk in righteousness and it wouldn't happen. And that would give this strange feeling of, well, God, is the, is the child you promised going to come? Did, did you forget about us? Here we are walking righteously before you. And yet, they kept walking in righteousness, right? So in that way, they are a picture of all of Israel who is waiting on the Lord. I should say all the remnants, the faithful in Israel, who were promised that One of the children of David, one of the sons of David, was going to come and reign on the throne forever. And yet they're looking around, and for more than 500 years, they haven't had a son of David on the throne. 
And now they've pretty well lost the records and can't even figure out who the son of David would be. Here they are under Roman occupation. It's not working out like it was supposed to. And so they might look around and say, God, have you, have you forgotten about us? Remember those promises that you made. And yet the faithful remnant keep walking in God's ways and waiting on him. Now, we will get a picture of what that faithful remnant should expect because soon Elizabeth, in her old age, will hold a son. And he will be so great that he'll be more than she ever expected to have in the first place. Likewise, Israel, who waited so long for the promises, will soon hold their Messiah. Both will look to the Lord and say, you did not forget about us. You kept your promises. So Luke is hinting at that here in the way that he introduces them, righteous and blameless. And yet, despite Psalm 128, no children. Okay, we move on. In the next verse, verse 8, and in verse 9 as well. It is Zechariah's turn. He's a priest. It's his turn to serve on duty. There were 24 divisions of priests in that day and thousands of people who were priests, thousands of priests. Uh, Each division would serve for one week near the temple twice a year. That adds up to 48 weeks. The other four weeks were festivals, and if it was a festival, everybody served. So it's his turn to serve. His division is there, and many people there, they cast a lot to decide who is going to be the one person to go in the temple and offer incense. Now, thousands of priests very unlikely you're going to be the one called on. If you do get called on to go in the temple, like that's a once in a lifetime thing. They cast the lot. It chooses Zechariah. Zechariah gets to go into the temple. And we learn later that the Lord had a purpose in that, right? He wanted to give a message to Zechariah. So we work backwards from that. Oh, the Lord had a plan for Zechariah and the lot fell to Zechariah. The Lord must have been in control of the lot and must have made it fall to Zechariah so that he would go in the temple and all of this would go according to plan. This is an illustration of Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. He's telling, reminding us of the sovereignty of God, even over the way the dice fall and the way that the lots fall. We move on then to verse 10, where we see that a multitude of people are praying outside while this great moment happens. Luke is very interested in the fact that great moments and great works of God are often surrounded by gathered people praying. We will see that theme over and over in Luke and especially in Acts. So already we have four points Luke is making. That could have been four sermons right there, but all those points will come back in later stories, and so we'll pick them up when they do. Today, we will focus instead on the very last point that that Luke makes. Before he comes, he prepares his people for his coming. We see this in the words the angel gave to Zechariah in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at those together. There appears to him a mighty angel of the Lord. Zechariah is scared. He's troubled. But the angel says to him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So there we see the Lord beginning his work of preparing the people to receive him when he comes. Now we have enough just in the early parts to know that whatever the Lord intends to do, it's going to be great. I mean, an angel of the Lord appearing announcing a great prophet who is going to come. And that great prophet is just here to prepare the way for whatever he's doing next. So something big is coming. Indeed, the Lord himself is coming to visit his people. But he is going to send this child, this prophet, once he grows up, to prepare them. And the way he will do that is listed in verse 15. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Later, he will turn the hearts of fathers to children, and he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This will prepare Israel to receive the Lord when he comes. So, to prepare the way, John will call the people to turn from sin back to God. He will call the people to reconcile with each other, right? Hearts of fathers turn to their children, or the hearts of people turning back to each other, so it will be peace among the people. And he will call those who are walking on the wrong path to come back to the right path. So it will call us to turn from sin back to God, turn to peace with one another, and turn back to walking on the right path. Then the people will be ready for the Lord's coming. And then... The Lord will come and they'll receive him. What's going on here is a pattern that happens many times in the scriptures. The Lord doesn't want to, when he comes, find faithlessness. He doesn't want to come and find us wrecking the place. He would rather find faithfulness when he comes. Yet, when he is far, What's our natural state, right? Stray and decay, right? Like a car that doesn't get worked on. We just kind of fall apart when he's not near. And so before he does come, he calls us to turn back to him. Let me me walk through each of those and then we'll look at applying this message to our lives. First, the Lord doesn't want to find faithfulness when he comes. Sorry, he doesn't want to find faithlessness when he comes, right? If you have kids or if you've ever worked with kids, You probably understand this. Maybe you've had to leave the kids alone for just a few minutes and then you come back and you don't want to find the place a wreck, right? Maybe you leave someone in charge of a dresser. Here, could you clean out your dresser? I will come back. You don't want to come back and find clothes thrown everywhere and the kids having a party while they throw clothes everywhere, right? You, you want to come back and find them doing right, doing what they're supposed to do because you're not working against them, right? You didn't leave them alone because you were hoping they would tank and you could come back and get upset about it. You want to find them faithful. And in the same way, when the Lord comes to us, he wants to find us faithful. Right? He wouldn't be pleased if he came back and everything was in disarray and out of order. No, he comes back and he, and he wants to find faithfulness. Uh, the reason for this is that when he comes, very consistent pattern in the Bible, he delivers his people, he rescues his people, he judges his enemies, and he amazes everybody. Just about every time, must be a thousand times in the scripture, the Lord shows up. And when he does, He rescues his people. He judges his enemies. He amazes 
everybody. And we know from the prophet Ezekiel that he doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. So when he comes, he would rather find you as one of his people who he rescues than find you as one of his enemies that he judges. Either way, he will amaze you because he is amazing. He would rather come and find faithfulness. This is why when he did come, in Matthew 23, he just laments over Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, the, the city that stoned the prophets, and how I long to gather you under my wings like a, like a hen gathers its chickens, but you weren't willing. Right? You can hear the sorrow in his voice, the disappointment, because he wanted to find them faithful. Uh, this is why you can hear sometimes a disappointed tone in his voice, oh, generation, how long am I to put up with you, right? Because he wanted to find us faithful. And yet when a Roman centurion shows faith, it's the last person you would expect him to approve of, a Roman centurion shows faith and he says, oh, I have not even found faith like this in Israel, right? He's excited about it because he wants to find faithfulness when he comes. Problem is, when he's not near, our natural state is stray and decay, right? We, we tend to go our own way, and we're kind of like herding cats, and we just dry all over the place, things fall apart, and it doesn't tend to go well. If you've worked with kids or have kids, you probably understand this dynamic too. You can leave them alone for a finite amount of time, before you come back and they will have disassembled the legs from the tables and be rolling the circular tables back and forth across the room, smacking them with the legs that they have just pulled off of the tables. You leave kids alone long enough and it's just going to descend into chaos. And the same is true for us. If the Lord is not here doing his work and constantly pulling us up, we're like a car that doesn't ever get worked on, doesn't get maintained, and eventually it just breaks down. Cars never fix themselves. The only direction they go is down. We have to repair them and get them back up. So our natural state is to stray and to decay. We see that pattern in Israel over and over again. The Lord takes them into the promised land through Joshua, working so powerfully through Joshua. And then Joshua dies, and the next era is the judges where they just crash and burn over and over. Unless God raises up a mighty leader and works powerfully. Other than that, crash and burn every time. And finally, the Lord raises up King David, strong, godly, mighty king, and he's working powerfully again, so things are back up. And then David dies, his son Solomon's good for a while, but then not good in the end. And after that, things just crash and burn and get worse and worse. And then eventually they get kicked out into exile. They're not even allowed to live in their land anymore, but, but the Lord begins to work again. He revives things. He brings them back. He brings a revival through Ezra and Nehemiah, and things start looking up again. But as soon as the Lord pulls back again, they just descend again. And that brings us to this day where Israel had strayed again, and they needed John to come and call them back before the Lord would come. And so then, because the Lord wants to find us faithful when he comes, and because we tend to stray, before he comes and visits us, he calls us to turn from sin. He calls us back to him first. That is what we find John doing here. He will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. 
The people are fighting with one another, but John will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. The people are walking in disobedience, but John will call the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Then they will be ready for the Lord to come. So the point then is that the Lord prepares his people for his coming by calling them to turn from sin. The Lord prepares his people for his coming by calling them to turn from sin. That's his part. What's our part in it? Well, our part is to be ready to receive the Lord, turn from sin. To be ready to receive the Lord, we turn from sin. That's Luke's point here as he records this great prophecy of John. And we'll spend the rest of this morning considering what that means for those of you who are interested in coming to Christ and being a Christian. What it means for us every time we gather in his presence here on Sunday morning. What it means as we pray for revival and what it means as we pray for his final coming once for all in the end. Let me speak first to those of you who are interested in following Jesus. Maybe you want to become a Christian and become one of his people. You're curious and that's why you're here. You need to know, I want you to know, that part of coming to Jesus is turning from sin. You can't turn to Jesus without turning from sin, right? That's part of it. And I also want you to know that God may be preparing you by showing your sin to you. Part of this process may not be very fun to you. You may think, why, if I'm coming closer and closer to God in this, why is it so painful and difficult? It may be because God is preparing you to receive the gospel One way we could say this is that as he did with John for Israel, when we come to Christ receiving the seed of the gospel, which that news takes root, it grows, it bears fruit. Well, before we receive that seed, often God plows the heart. He tends to plow the heart before he plants the seed. If you garden much, you probably know that our clay-like soil here in Indiana does not receive seed very well. Hard soil doesn't do that. You got to get the plow out, get the tiller out, get the shovel out and turn it, right? You got to cut into it a bunch, make it loose, and then it's ready to receive seed. Well, in the same way, when it comes to the gospel message, a heart that is rock solid and says, I'm good, right? I don't need anything else. I'm good. That's a hardened heart heart that isn't ready to receive the message of Jesus, that you're in need of salvation, you must turn from sin, receive forgiveness from Jesus to be saved. A self-sufficient heart is not ready to receive that. And so, just like I get my tiller out late April, early May, and I start plowing that garden, the Lord might plow your heart as well. And you may begin to hear through preaching or through the reading of the word or just see in the world or someone may tell you, and you may realize suddenly, oh, the Lord is so much holier than I have ever given him credit for. I haven't taken him seriously, and there he is in heaven, and here I am on earth. My words should have been few the whole time. Right? There's, there's the plow going through the heart, softening it, readying it for the message. And then through preaching or through reading or through just looking at your own life, you may suddenly realize his standard of holiness is so high, and it's not unjust for him to expect me to meet it, and yet I have rebelled against him so much. 
You may look back at points in your life or consider your way of life right now and your heart just breaks. What have I done before the Lord? There's the plow going through the heart, right? It's more and more ready to receive the message. You may even hear through preaching or you may read in the word the just judgment of God. And you may look at it and say, I don't like that one bit, but I know I deserve it. I know I've sinned before God. I know he's holy. I know I deserve judgment forever. There's the plow going through the heart again. Well, now that fertile soil is ready to receive the same message you've rejected before. Now the the Lord casts the seed and you hear the words that Jesus Christ died and rose to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who would trust in him. And now that heart's ready to receive that seed, right? So often God plows the heart before he plants the seed. And so if you've been coming a few times and you're hearing that gospel message and you're like, what is going on in my heart? I should be so happy. And yet it feels like my heart's getting cut open. That's what the Lord is doing. He's preparing you to receive that message. And maybe even right now is the moment when you're ready to receive it. Say, okay, I will trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for my salvation, which I know I need. If that's you, I'll call you to do that right now. We see this happen many times in scriptures. Uh, It will happen for John. He will go and preach and his message will have fire in his belly. He, I, I can't believe some of the things he says. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a good opener, right? Man, and, and the people are cut to the heart and they say, what do we do? Right? Like, we're ready. Whatever the Lord calls us, what do we do? He says, be baptized for repentance. The Lord is coming. Be ready to receive him. And then later on, Peter will get up in Acts chapter 2, also recorded by Luke, and he will preach to a crowd in the same city that just called for Jesus to be crucified. So by some reckonings, like the same crowd, so to speak, though maybe not the very same people, who had just cried out for Jesus to be crucified 40 days prior. And he gets up in front of them and he says, know for certain that God has made Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified by raising him from the dead. Now think about receiving that if you were the city and the crowd that condemned him to death. And then you hear, God raised that man from the dead and made him your Lord. Oh no, right? And so it says the people were cut to the heart and they cried out, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the salvation of your sins, right? So they were cut to the heart and they were ready to hear, repent and be baptized. Similarly, Paul will be in prison one day, he and Silas, and they'll be singing hymns and there will be a great and mighty earthquake. All of a sudden, the power of God will be made known in that prison and the guard will be so terrified at the power of God that he will fall down before them and say, what do I do? What must I do to receive eternal life? Right? God had plowed his heart. He had prepared him to receive the good news. And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So often as we come to Christ The Lord does this very thing. He prepares our hearts and then he gives us that gospel message and we are ready to receive it. 
Now, if me telling you that was emotional for you and you're saying, that is just what I'm feeling, the Lord may be calling you even today, turn from sin and come to him, place your faith in him and find salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. There's what it means for those of us who are considering coming to Jesus. God may be preparing us by pointing out our sins. If the Lord prepares his people for his coming by calling them to turn from sin, that means something for us every Sunday morning. All right? We gather here together, and Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Right? So we're gathered in his name on his day, and here he is among us right, in a special way. Now, if you're a Christian, he lives in you all the time, but there's a a different and special sense in which he is not just in you, but kind of with us while we gather like this. And that's even more heightened, I believe, when we take the Lord's Supper and we've got symbols of his body and his blood and we're receiving them and he draws so near to us. What does John's ministry and the foretelling of John tell us about that? Well, it tells us that as we draw near with the expectation that God is coming, that he will be present here, We need to prepare for his coming by turning from sin, right? So you may wonder why every Sunday do we stop and spend time in confession of sin? Uh, This is why, because the Lord wants to find us faithful when he comes. Naturally, we go throughout the week, we stray and decay, we come back in need. And so as he is settling in his presence in this room, he calls us to turn from sin and come back to him. This is one of the subtle ways that we say we believe God is really going to show up in this room when we gather. And so we're going to make our hearts right and we're going to prepare. We're going to look over every sin we may have committed in the last week and give them up to say, Lord, we are ready to receive you. There is no sin in my life that I'm holding on to. There may be something I haven't realized yet. Show it to me, but I'm not hanging on to anything. There is someone who is ready to sing to the Lord when the time for singing comes. There's someone who is ready to hear the word when it's time for the word to be proclaimed. But if we come in holding on to sin, oh, we'll get so much less out of our time in God's presence. Let's consider it this way. Let's imagine that you've fallen into some sin uh, repeatedly for, for months and not turned from it. You're not willing to turn from it. You sit here on Sunday morning and your loving pastor just happens to preach on that very sin for like 45 minutes one Sunday. All right? That's not fun, is it, right? To just sit there and squirm and know like, ah, this is just what I'm doing. And, and my prayer would be that by the end of that, you'd be ready to look up to God and say, okay, God, I will turn from it. I will not hold on to this any longer. Perhaps that's how God would work in your life through a sermon like that. I don't enjoy preaching those, but I do hope they work in our lives when it happens. So by the end of that, perhaps the Lord will have brought you to repentance and it will have blessed you. But that's not a very fun process, is it? Imagine this instead. Imagine you come in on Sunday morning, we walk through the confession of sin together, and the Lord just moves your heart and you say, God, I'm I'm in this sin and I hand it to you. I turn from it even now as I draw near to your presence. 
And then you sing the songs, basking in God's forgiveness. You sing our sins there are many. His mercy is more, right? You're sensing and feeling the forgiveness of God as you have turned from sin. And then your loving pastor preaches for 45 minutes on that sin that you just turned from. And you can just say, Lord, we've already talked about it, all right? Thank God I've turned from that. And so at the end, you might be in the same place, but what a more pleasant way to get there, right? So better to turn from sin before you meet with the Lord than to have to turn from sin while you're meeting with the Lord, right? So that's why before we draw near, we confess our sins to God because we want to come in ready, having turned and having tasted already the sweetness of forgiveness, This is even more true as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Now, as we take in and receive signs of Jesus' body and his blood, and he settles in very present with us in that holy moment, oh, I would not have one of us do that carelessly, right? I mean, can you imagine consuming a symbol of the one that you are resisting and standing against? If you you hold on to sin inside of you and you receive those elements, it's like having two foods that don't agree with each other in your belly, right? You know what that feels like? Not pleasant. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, you guys are having this supper and you're persisting in sin and you're wondering why some of you are getting sick and dying, right? Sounds extreme, but it was going on. Why? Because they're taking in symbols of God's presence while they're blatantly mocking him with their lives. Now, I wouldn't have any of us do that, and so we spend time examining ourselves. And it's not that if you've ever sinned, you can't come to the supper. It's if you're holding on to sin and won't let it go. Then we're not in a good place. Our conscience isn't clean, and we shouldn't be taking in that symbol. So doubly true for the Lord's Supper, as he draws near, we prepare by turning from sin, that there are people ready and a people prepared. We look also to unity as well as the hearts of the fathers were turned to their children. We approach the supper and we say, is there anybody in my church I'm angry with? I better make that right first. Jesus says, you remember your brother holds something against you. Go and settle things with your brother and then make your offering on the altar, right? So, so be right with God, be right with man before coming in. This is how we prepare ourselves to receive God's presence on Sunday morning. We do it by turning from sin and turning back to one another. What about as we pray for a revival, right? I talked about that earlier, right? I pray for it every day. I ask that God would pour his spirit out upon us. Many of you do as well. Some of you gather in my office every Wednesday and we pray for that every week. Now, if the Lord were to come down, if his spirit were to be very present with us, and he were to be working mightily among us, how can we be ready for that? We can be ready by turning from sin. Let him find a people who are ready to receive him if he comes. And in fact, this is often historically the first thing that happens as a revival is beginning. Pastors have written accounts of revivals that have happened in their church. One man in our church actually was a pastor during a revival and can tell the story to you. Often it begins with individuals in the church either turning from sin 
or making peace with one another where they had not been at peace. Turning back to the Lord or the hearts of the fathers turning back to their children. And one of the encouraging things that I'm seeing here in our church is that in the last nine, ten months, just a steady rise of people who are willing to come and say, I have been in this sin for too long and I need help turning from it. People who have turned to friends and say, I am ready to turn from this sin, will you help me? People have come into my office and said, I'm ready to turn from this sin, will you help me? Some of you know who you are. You probably think you're the only one, but you're not. You're one of several. And what I wonder and what I pray is, is could the Lord be working through those of you who have already begun to turn from secret sins in your life? Could that be the first sparks of a great movement? I don't know. We will find out. I know what I'm praying for, but I don't know what the Lord is doing. And I wonder if others of you are sitting right now on a secret, repeated sin that you know you must turn from, and you just haven't turned from it. And maybe the Lord is moving you right now. Okay, today's the day. I need to turn. And my word to you, which we read earlier in our call to worship, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, turn back come to. That may mean getting help from a friend. It may mean getting help from a pastor. Whatever you need to do to turn from that sin. I wonder if the Lord will rise up the steady tide of repentance here and bring great revival. This is part of why we want to get things just right in the way we do church as well, right? If the Lord comes, we want to be ready for him to come. And so his command to be all things to all people that we might save some. We continue to tweak things about our decor and about our music style and things like this because we want to send a message that says this is for everybody. This is for your grandfather and your grandson. This is for your grandmother and your granddaughter. All things to all people. And if he comes, we want to be able to say we're being all things to all people. This is why we want our leadership structure as healthy as it can be so we can be ready if the Lord does a great and mighty work. Oh, would we be ready when he comes? Lastly, and this is really the big one, we have been praying for 2,000 years that Jesus would return. He left, he said, I'm going to come back in the way you saw me go. That means we'll see him come down from the sky. And he says in Matthew 24, you don't know the day or the hour. The Son of Man is coming at a time you do not expect. Therefore, you must always be ready. Now, some think that we know when he's coming, but he says we don't know when he's coming. And so we have to always be ready, always live with a sense of urgency as if he were coming tomorrow because he just might be. Now, being ready does not mean predicting correctly when he is going to come, right? The, the one who looks up and says, called it, probably not ready because that's not what ready means. What does ready mean? Ready means not holding on to any sin and busy with the Lord's work. That's what it means to be ready. Let, let him find you ready. Let him find you not holding on to any sin in your life. And let him find you doing his work when he comes. Here's what you don't want. You don't want him to come back in person to meet face to face and for him to say, okay, my child, now we need to talk about whatever. 
No, what you want to do is sort that out before you meet with him so that he can look at that and say, we already talked about that, didn't we? Okay, let's move on. All right, that's what you want when he comes. So sort it out with him now. Right? Bring that sin to him and say, Father, I have done this. Will you forgive me? Bring that sin to him and say, I turned from it. By your strength and your power and the help of your church and your spirit, I will turn from it. Better to have a hard conversation now than face-to-face with him. This is sort of a roundabout way of saying this, but I learned recently that it's commonplace now for young single men and women when they're dating, it's commonplace for them to break up with each other over text, right? Right? Now, young men, this is free. Don't do that, okay? All right, that's free. Now, I can understand, though, why that's tempting. Why is that tempting? Because when you've got to have a hard conversation with somebody, it's a whole lot harder to look them in the eye, hear their unique voice respond, not know how it's going to go because you're not in control of how they respond, to stand before their unique image-bearing face and say a hard thing. Well, that's hard, isn't it? Far easier to just, whew, that's over with, right? Right? Easier to have that hard conversation outside of their presence than face-to-face. And that's why a lot of us fall to that temptation. Well, what could we learn from that? Well, when it comes to our hard conversations we need to have with the Lord, I have done this. I need to turn from it. Will you forgive me? Well, here is a Lord that welcomes you to have that conversation now outside of his presence. He says, turn back now. We don't even need to talk about it later, right? And far better to look to him now, have that hard conversation, than to have it later on before his face. So how do you prepare for Jesus' return? If there's any sin you're hanging on to in your life, turn from it now. Confess it to him now. I hope that all of us can live in a way that if he comes back even now, we don't have any accounts we need to settle with him. He can just say, well, we've talked about that already, and we already talked about that, and we already talked about that, and we already talked about that. Well, you know, let's just move on to the reward because there's very little here that we haven't already talked about, right? That's what you want when he comes back. And I hope the Lord can bring all of us even right there. So, those of you that want to come to Jesus, how do you prepare and, and what might the Lord be doing to prepare you? Well, he may be pointing out your sin and, and working in your heart to ready you to receive that message. And if he has, receive that message even right now. As we draw near every Sunday, we will turn from sin as we draw near to him. As we pray for revival, we will turn from sin while we do it. And as we ready ourselves for his glorious return, we will turn from sin. May the Lord make ready a people prepared. Amen. Let's, let's pray together, and we will even do that right now. If you need to turn from something, I'll give you time even today to do it.